Good morning. There are worksheets coming around. Some of you, uh, maybe many of you know that we are, uh, 13 of us are uh, heading to the Mediterranean on Tuesday. Uh, you may have heard that there's been a little bit of action in the world, uh, in Israel. Uh, Israel had been on uh, the docket. We were going to spend two days there. It probably will not surprise any of you that uh, Royal Caribbean changed that. We're not going to Israel at all. Um, they have rerouted us to safer points uh, away from there. Uh, there's disappointment uh, for sure, uh, but uh, this is an event, uh, I wouldn't say unprecedented, but you have to go back 50 years to find something like this. So um, uh, we appreciate, we still appreciate your prayers, uh, but we're going to be in a much safer place than uh, we might have been. But we're thankful, sorry for the, very sorry for the loss of life, but thankful that uh, this, the timing of this uh, did not put us there when it happened. So uh, we'll be praying for our brethren. There is a congregation of God's people in the north part of the country, uh, and so they need our prayers, certainly. We are in the studying of the book of Psalms, the Psalm book of Israel, uh, it has five parts. We're still in the book one of that particular uh, section of Psalms. Uh, as we are finishing up with handing these out, I wanted to share with you, um, so far as I can re- recall, the first article I ever had published uh, on the book of Psalms was in the Fulton County Gospel News. It publishes out of Mammoth Spring, Arkansas. And it's on our first psalm this morning, Psalm 19. Uh, and I guess I didn't know that my alliteration went back this far, but uh, the uh, breakdown of the psalm from this article is that God's character is upheld by different things. It's upheld by the world of nature, verse 1 through 6. Uh, it's upheld by the wisdom of his word, verse 7 through uh, 10. By the warning that he left, verse 11. By the wealth he bestows, verse 11. By the washing he offers, verse 12 and 13. And by the words of his children, verse 14. So they, I was 24 years old when that was published, and I guess they were looking for filler space. I'm not sure. If you would turn to Psalm 4, I want us to um, take note of something that is happening in Psalm chapter 19 that I wasn't aware of when I wrote that article. In fact, for many years, um, when we think about the book of Psalms, we are studying a type of literature. Uh, it is old. Uh, Testament poetry, and it's going to have certain characteristics uh, as um, uh, any kind of literature does. Prophecy uh, often will have um, uh, apocalyptic language. Uh, uh, The the book of Acts is a history book, so it's going to be written in narrative form. The book of Genesis is a history book, so it's going to be written telling the people places and things, walking through history. So when we're looking at Hebrew poetry, there are things that the inspired writers are doing that we might not notice, number one, because we speak English, not Hebrew, and number two, because we're not familiar with how uh, that writers, Hebrew writers wrote when they wrote what they wrote. So I want us to go to Psalm 4 for just a second, Um, and I want us to see something that's done in Psalm 19 in a way that's easier to illustrate. If you'll notice it just really quickly, it's a short psalm. Uh, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love that which is worthless and aim at deception? 
But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart. More than when their grain and their new wine abound, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Um, When we get to Psalm chapter 19, I'll come back to that in just a moment. Um, There is a device called a chiasm. We've talked about this before. Um, This is intentional. And what you'll find and how you can tell that it's taking place is that it begins and ends with parallel thoughts. And each piece, if you can kind of think of it this way, and I may have it on your sheet that way, you have uh, an A and an A, they'll line up on that left column. B and B kind of uh, is indented. And then at the very center, you'll have that even indented more. What that represents is the parallels. If you'll notice in Psalm chapter 4, verse 1 and verse uh, uh, 7 and 8 are parallel. Answer me when I call, you've relieved my distress, be gracious to me. Look at verse 7, you've put gladness in my heart. Uh, In peace I'll lie down. So there's this peace and contentment. He begins the psalm and he ends the psalm in that way. If you look at the the verse 2, O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what's worthless and aim at deception? Is that hopeful and positive? What is he focusing on there? Who's he talking about? In a general way. He says, O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? Mine, how long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? And then look at verse 6. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. So he focuses in the first place, on a, he, he lifts up a prayer to God. He begins and ends the psalm very similarly worded. He focuses on his enemy and his oppression in verse 2 and in verse 6. And then in the heart of the psalm, notice, But know the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call him, tremble and do not sin, meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. He's challenging the, the person who this psalm is written to, to serve God. And I think with practice we get a little better at this, but it really is kind of plain that the bookends are alike, The next to first and the next to last are alike. And then the heart of the psalm is what the psalm is really all about. About serving God. Plead to God when you're struggling, when your enemies are pushing against you. You focus. You can't do anything about what's outside of your control. What you can focus on is improving your service to God. That's what Psalm 4 is about. Now, that's an illustration because when we get to Psalm chapter 19, it's a very familiar psalm, and there's so much that we can learn from that that it will benefit us and strengthen us, but there's even more going on than we might think at first when we begin to study Psalm 19. So let's go to Psalm chapter 19, and if somebody who can read nice and loud, Jeremy, let me pick on you. If you'll read Psalm chapter 19, I'd appreciate it. Okay, does this psalm seem familiar to you? When you think about this psalm, what kind of stands out? What's the most prominent verses or ideas typically when you think of this psalm? Okay, the heavens declare the glory of God. We've heard that one many, many times uh, in uh, sermons and Bible classes. Anything else? Yeah, 
There's actually even a song that we sing to, 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 with those words. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. I've heard men pray that in, in worship before. So um, these are significant features of the psalm. But if I were to ask you, what is this psalm about? If you were to try to say there's one central idea, would you come up with something? Could you? What would you say it was? Okay, God is perfect. What else? What about his divine law? Okay, all right. So God has given uh, his will, his word, his law to man. It's, it's revealed. Anything else? Okay, you can see the tone of praise in the way that he uh, approaches this. That this is a, remember we said there's different types of psalms. This is a didactic psalm. I, I, I don't come up with them, I'm just sharing it with you. Didactic simply means teaching. It's a teaching psalm. And you can see that there's a lot of different ways that teaching is being done in this psalm. But I agree that the tone is praise as the psalmist approaches this. But I want you to see that there's something that the writer is doing that helps us to really get at what the heart of this psalm is. Um, We talked about a chiasm, and a chiasm is just a way in reverse order that the psalmist is trying to say the same thing. And he puts the message in the heart of the psalm. And the more familiar you become, and you can see that, hey, the beginning of this and the end of this are very similar. And as I continue reading a little bit, this and near the end are also very similar. And you walk all the way in, and you'll find that there's this very central, powerful thought at the heart of it. That's not an accident. The Spirit inspired David in this instance to put that there so he can make an emphasis, and we'll see how he does that. So you'll notice I've kind of broken it down for you. In somewhat of what they call a chiastic order, you have the first and the last being on the far left corner, and then I indent it all the way into the heart. You'll notice that the psalm begins with one of the the thoughts that you guys are very familiar with. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. So there's a complete idea that nature declares. What does nature declare? Yeah, God and His nature, His power. And what is he, how does He end the psalm? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And so nature's declaring at the, at the beginning of the psalm. The psalmist is declaring at the end of the psalm. All right, And then you have the very public word that nature declares about God. All right, so uh, you're, again, you're familiar with verses 2 and following. Day to day uh, pours forth speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, there's no words where the voice is not heard. Where can you go to escape evidence of God's design in this universe? Could there be a more public testimony? Um, sometimes, because of the schedule, like this morning being Sunday, I, um, I got up and went and... Um, and milked our cow at, at uh, uh, five in the morning. And um, going out there on a clear night, you see the, the little dipper and the big dipper. And in, you know what they say, it's always darkest before the dawn. I mean, the stars are just, you feel like you just reach up and touch them. 
And how, how often do you stop and count all the ways that nature screams out in the order and the intricacy and the complexity of all that is, how it's held in place? We're not in this chaos at all times where could you just don't know what's going to happen in the next second or we're going to be flying out into space. How it is that we stay in orbit. You have this very public declaration, God, God is Now, so you have nature very publicly declaring God and His nature. And I want you to see near the end of the psalm, as we look at its parallel, that there's the very private word of the psalmist, where he says, verse 11, Moreover by them your servant is warned. He's just talked about uh, God's word, God's law, as uh, Phil put it. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. The things that nobody else can see, that I know what's going on in my life. Also keep your servant back from presumptuous sin. What I presume is what's going on inside of me. Then I'll be blameless. I'll be acquitted of the great transgression. All right, so we see this parallel continuing. And what's at the heart of the psalm? You're very familiar with this part of the psalm too, right? Look at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restores the soul, and so forth. Going all the way down to verse 10, which you're probably the most familiar with. More to be desired are they than gold, than much fine gold, sweeter than the honey and the honeycomb. Now what I want you to notice is that what the psalmist does is he gives us seven descriptions. If you've been in a class about Old Testament literature or even in the book of Revelation, what's the big deal about seven? It's the perfect number. So perfect, complete, so what is the psalmist doing? Does he just say, oh, i got more than six, but I don't quite have eight, so I'm going to settle on seven. He's moved by the Spirit, and so he gives us these seven descriptions, and along with the seven descriptions, there's seven benefits. All right. So if you see the descriptions, it's perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's clean, it's true, it's desirable, and what does it do for you? It restores you, it makes you wise, it rejoices your heart, and so forth. And so nature proves God's existence and God's nature. The psalmist experienced God's existence and God's nature through the effect of the Word in his life, and the Word of God is at the heart of everything. So this is an amazing way that the psalmist uses to to declare unto us the powerful nature of his Word. Now, I, I feel like you've seen Psalm 19 before. You've had folks like me who've tried to write articles about that. But I want you to see what God is doing even beyond what's on the surface. That, that's the thing about and the beauty of Bible study. The more we study and the longer that we study, you know what we discover? There's so much more to learn. There's so much more there that points to a divine source behind what we have. We didn't need that to to really benefit from those words, but when you have seen that central message of all that's declaring God's existence, you see that God's doing something even further. All right, so I just thought I would start us with that. Any thoughts or comments before we we move on? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and I think you've hit on to something here, and that is when you begin to even break down the heart of the psalm, you'll see that there are different benefits um, that by themselves are powerful for our lives, but taken together, it's like God's Word can help you in all these different ways. It can cause you to respond and for you to do what you need to do. That's a great great thought. Oh, absolutely. And what happens when we do what God's told us to do? We're not going to be worse for it. 
It's going to aid us. It's going to improve us. It's going to help us to be what he intended us to be. All right, great thoughts. Anything else? All right, let's turn over again. I wish I could stop at every psalm. You know, Psalm 15 on moral integrity. Psalm 16 is a psalm about the the resurrection of Christ, the the most clear prophecy in all the Old Testament. Um, Psalm 17 is a prayer of faith for the struggler. Psalm 18 is uh, a song of praise and thanksgiving. Uh, We get one of our songs, I will call upon the Lord who's worthy to be praised from that psalm. 32 verses. It's a powerful study all of its own, but we've just got to keep moving. So we get to Psalm chapter 22, and I want to spend some time with that. Psalm 22 has been given several nicknames. It's been called uh, the Shepherd Psalms. It's been called the Messianic Trilogy. Uh, So that is uh, this three-part series on the Messiah, on the Christ. Some have called it the cross, the crook, and the crown. All right, so we think about the cross, the crucifixion, that's Psalm 22. The crook, who uses the crook? The Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23. And the crown, we have the, the psalm of exaltation in Psalm 24. Um, there's a progressive look at the Messiah. It's, it goes incredibly in order in the three tenses. Psalm 22 is past tense, if you look at the totality of, of Jesus as Messiah. What happened in the past? He died on the cross. What he does now? He shepherds my life. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. But he continues to shepherd us, Hebrews chapter 13. And he is exalted. He's on the right hand of God. He's crowned as king over his kingdom. Um, H.A. Ironside observed about John chapter 10 and verse 10 that Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. In Hebrews 13 and verse 10, he is the great shepherd. And in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4, he is the chief shepherd. All right, so Ironside takes that and applies it to these three psalms. When you look at Psalm 22, he's the good shepherd. And again, what does the good shepherd do? I'm the good shepherd. And the shepherd does what for the sheep? Lays down his life. All right? Uh, In Psalm 23, uh, he is that great shepherd, the one who satisfies my every need. Uh, He's the great shepherd of Hebrews 13, 20. And he is the chief shepherd, who is the sovereign king. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4. So Psalm 22 through 24 stand side by side in Scripture. You, you, you might want to consider going backwards that Psalm 24 is a psalm of sovereignty. God, the Son, is above all. It is a psalm of shepherding, Psalm 23, and a psalm of suffering in Psalm 22. I want to spend the most time this morning looking at Psalm chapter 22. Now if you'll look over the top of that, and there's 31 verses, so we'll kind of... Observe it as we walk through. We won't take the time to read it all. Uh, The heading is very intriguing. That it is a cry of anguish and a song of praise. It has several alternative headings at the top. The suffering and hope of the virtuous man. The cry of a desolate spirit. Dereliction and deliverance. The psalmist cries because he is pained. And then sings a song of praise to God. So this psalm is very clearly composed of two movements. 1 through 21 go together. And 22 through 31 go together. There's a series of positive and negative feelings that are to be found there. Uh, There's a shift from being excluded to being included uh, in this final positive upswing of the psalm. It is classified as a passional psalm, which means that there's extreme suffering. If you take or putting notes over your chapters of your Bible 
If you want to know where some others are, maybe you want to study the, the suffering that the psalmist talks about in the Psalms, and maybe you don't want to stop at 22. Here's some others. Psalm 35. Psalm 41. Psalm 55. Psalm 69. And Psalm 109. 109, 109. So it might be a, let's, let's say that you're going through a, a trial, something very difficult in your life, and you're wanting to read from somebody who's been there and knows what you're going through, but not just anybody, but somebody who the Spirit of God is leading to record those words. You'll be surprised the benefit that you'll derive from reading what you might think on the front of it is negative. But what you're going to find in all these passional psalms is they do start in the valley. Why? I'm hurting. Oh, this is going on and I can't believe it. Where are you, God? But by the end of the psalm, each and every time, you're going to find him turning to trust and faith that God is going to deliver. He knows God's character is tried and true, and he's going to come through. He's going to help him through. And you know, that's what we need when we're going through struggles. Because so often when we're in the midst of something terrible, all we can see is that the black cloud of what's right there. We don't see any hope. We don't see any kind of remedy at all. And so what we need is to be able to see how God has been there in the past and how he'll be there uh, for us as we go forward. All right, so what I want to do is I want to look at about three different areas in this psalm. The first thing I want us to do is to expose the text. All right, So we're just going to kind of look through and outline it and see what is going on in this psalm. And we start with the title. Anybody have a title over their psalm, Psalm 22? Okay, we'll come back to that. The deer of the dawn. Okay, say it one more time. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, that's, that's um, a more extensive one than I can... Uh, uh, so suffering, praise, and posterity... Okay, posterity is what's left to others. The dough of the dawn. Anybody got something different? There's, there's going to be a lot of different ones. Yes, ma'am. Rosh Hashanah? Okay, all right. Uh, it's interesting. All of those, uh, we can dig a little deeper and find out more about it. So I, I'm going to take that just a little bit of, of a moment to do that. In my Bible, it says, for the choir director. Anybody else have that? I, I, huh? Chief musician. Uh, Ajaleth Hashashar and a Psalm of David. Okay? Alright, so there's two schools of thought about this. Now, by the way, this part over the Psalm is ancient, but don't consider it inspired. These are written instructions that in the, the process of transmission we have that preserved for us. And so these are significant. They do go way back, um, uh, but it's not the content of the Psalm. Uh, it's not inspired. It's what uh, scribal penmen would have put on the top of it. So some of the terms are not as familiar to us. All right, there, we talked about in our first class, there's some terms that are used we don't use every day. Um, um, when Mike leads singing, he doesn't uh, say salah in the middle of a song in between verses. It's a Hebrew thing. It's not something we do. It's thought to be a pause in between at a significant moment. But we're not really 100% sure. So let's talk about some of the things here. The title. It's either instructions concerning the tomb. Um, and that's why you have the chief musician or the choir director. Or that, that title describes the theme and the content of the psalm. All right, so then we have that big 10-cent word, 
that uh, uh, Susan uh, just shared with us. Did a good job, by the way. Ajalith Hashashahar literally means the deer of the dawn or the hind of the morning. All right, so what we have to do is be a little bit interpretive there. What would be meant by the, the deer of the dawn? When you think about the deer, in most cultures, what does the deer symbolize? Let me ask you this way. What does the lion rep- represent? Fierce, right? So deer too, right? Deer is just ferocious animal. Peace. What else? Anything else? Right or wrong, what's, what did Disney do with a deer? Bambi. So what is Bambi? What, what, do, you, what do you think of with Bambi? Pity, innocence. You know, vulnerable. Uh, certainly does evoke a picture of peace. But So you have this vulnerable individual. So when you read through Psalm 22, um, how does that individual appear? Especially as we dig deeper and see who Psalm 22 is really about. We see how that fits. Um, but the deer of the dawn. Uh, so if a deer is like Bambi, a symbol of persecuted innocence, and the dawn, what is the dawn symbolic of? Say, say it again. Freshness. Morning. And what happens symbolically with morning? What does that, what does that represent to us? It's a new day. You know, you, you've, you, I know you have laid awake on your bed at 3, 3.30 in the morning. And when you're, when you're awake and you're really mulling something over 3, 3.30 in the morning, does it, does it seem bigger than it does in the daylight? Doesn't it magnify? I mean, I, I, I think it's in that darkness that we're at our lowest and we're thinking, oh, this is, this is horrible. And we start thinking of a hundred scenarios and all the different ways our worries go. It's almost, it's incredible, isn't it? What happens when the sun comes up? We take a look at that thing again. Is it as big and bad as it was at three in the morning? I, I've never experienced that. And I've done the three, three thirty thing in the morning. It's, it seems not near so bad. And so the deer of the dawn, the thought is, perhaps we have this persecuted innocent one who in verses 1 through 21 is facing darkness, the lowest part, the, the darkest before the dawn. And then in 22 through 31, you have that light that appears, that hope, that praise that comes out of that. Um, And so those instructions can be helpful to us to understand really how to interpret and and to approach this psalm. Um, So as we look at the psalm itself and we expose it, we start with the introduction. David begins with a question. What's his question? Psalm 22, 1. All right, read the whole thing if you don't mind. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. What do you think of? That's it. Christ. Christ on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All right, so what's, where is Jesus in his trial when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is he in the dawn or is he in the 3.30 in the morning? He's at the lowest. So low that he feels... Forsaken by God. About the ninth hour. That's it. And so it's in the middle of the suffering and he's struggling. He's struggling to know why he's 
Now, he intellectually understands why he's going through this. Um, emotionally, it's a much more difficult thing. To, and I can't imagine an, a perfectly innocent man who was struggling and who was hurting. He is seeing his own creation treat him with such disdain. He is seeing his disciples, if he can see them at all, so far away hiding so that they won't be associated with him. Only, ultimately, a few that are willing to go all the way to the foot of the cross. And what has he done wrong? He has only acted in the interest of others. And here he is in the midst of a trial like you and I will never go through because there are going to be times when we go through something and we really didn't do anything directly to contribute to that. At all. Maybe we've done all that we can for someone and they betrayed us. But we ourselves are not perfectly innocent. We don't have omniscience. We don't have omnipotence. And so we might have done something better when looked at as compared to the divine. But here's Jesus. He never fails in any way. And yet he's still hanging on the cross. Right? No, so, no, 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 not at all, because he's bearing the burden of sin as an innocent sacrifice. That's why he could go to the cross on our behalf. And so bearing that weight and that, that, that ugliness and that stain of sin. Yeah. And we're swimming in the deep end of the pool when we're talking about God, but it's, a, it's an eternal plan. It was the, uh, the eternal purpose of God. I'm thinking of Acts 2 and verse 23. It's according to the, the foreknowledge of God. He, they knew this was going to happen, but yet bearing that, Jesus is not just divine, he's human. And so that's how that psalm begins. Why? Why is this happening? And we'll come back to the Messiah aspect in just a moment. Um, there's the main points that I want us to look at. Uh, it seems clear that David divides uh, this psalm into two distinct parts. The first part is found in verse 1 through 21. The second in verse 22 through 31 um, and there's different ways you might could title this if you wanted to. You could put, um, I don't want to just bombard y'all with alliteration, but I just remember things better, so I do that. You have the grief in the first part. And you have the glory in the second. It could properly be called a sob in the first part and a song in the second part. But if you don't want to sully your pages with alliteration, you have a prayer of lamentation in the first part and a psalm of thanksgiving in the second. But no, no matter how you title these, it's, there's something that's very clear. That the tone of verses 1 through 21 is somber. It's intensely uh, sorrowful. It's negative. It's despairing. And the tone of those last ten verses is hopeful. It's joyful, positive, and thankful. So here's the question. What happens? What happens from the first two-thirds of that psalm that causes the shift in the second part? Remember, a passional psalms, all the passional psalms start in the valley at the 3.30 in the morning and they're on their way to the dawn. Now, if you want to note this, the key part to the first, uh, the key idea of the first part is you do not answer. Uh, Roger read that in verse 2. And the key to part 2 is he heard and it's implied he answered. Verse 24. All right, there are several ways to outline this, uh, and I will, um, I will give you that really quick. I'm going to give you my outline. Um, there's a petition in verse 1 through 5. Why have you forsaken me when you delivered my fathers? That's kind of the first five verses in a nutshell. There's a persecution 
In verse 6 through 10, he's despised, he's sneered at, he's mocked in what he's going through. A petition and then a persecution. There's a pitiful plight in verse 11 through 18. What is it? He's far from God. He's too close to his tormentors. And it's creating this difficult moment for him. There's a plea in verse 19 through 21. As he's reaching the end of this dark valley, he asks God, please do not be far from me. And then there's the praise in verse 22 through verse 21. If you want to have this, the key words of this psalm are the words, there's about uh, four of them. Far. It's found throughout the psalm. It's found in verse 1, in verse 11, in verse 19. It describes how the, the, the uh, protagonist, the, the speaker, feels in the first part of that psalm. I feel estranged. I feel far off from God. Let me ask you this. Take away the sin factor. When you are struggling with a great difficulty, a problem or trial in your life, do you ever feel like God's far from you? Here's the inspired psalmist who feels that way. Does that mean you don't love God? Does it mean that you think God doesn't love you? You know, for all else that we're going to see in this psalm, I want us to see as we build a relationship with God, as we build a relationship built on trust, that there are going to be moments when He feels far from us. Now, we don't want to be the cause of that distance because we've not been in His Word, because we've not prayed to Him, and when we can't remember how long, when we're not striving to walk in the light of Christ, but when you're doing all of that, there are going to be moments when you're overwhelmed by the difficulty of life and He seems far away. It's just the way it is. Well, as long as we're in this fallen world, there are going to be times like that. There's the word delivered. It's found five times in the psalm. Verse 1, verse 4, verse 5, verse 8, and verse 20. What's interesting is... That all of these are found in the first part of the psalm. When I think of deliverance, I think of that being cause for praise. But what, how it's used in this psalm is, is he wants delivered. I'm, I'm in this great difficulty and I want out of it. And that's us. You think about the, the, the most severe trial you've been in in the last six months, year. I don't know what your time period is. You just want it out of it. You wanted it resolved. You want to wake up tomorrow and not have that burden on your shoulders. The psalmist understands that. A third uh, key word is trust. Verse 4, verse 5, and verse 9. Trust. And these words go together in the Hebrew, praise and worship. It's found six times in the last ten verses. How do I respond when I'm struggling? Well, a key to my recovery is, is worship. There's more we can say about that, but let me move on to some personal application. I think there's some great lessons for us to learn. Number one, sorry about that. I could have made that a lot easier for you. All right, here's some personal application. Number one, we may misunderstand God when we suffer, verse 1 and 2. I may question God's compassion when I'm allowed to suffer, particularly if I can't see what I did to pull myself into that situation. You've suffered as the result of some sinful choice that you've made. And it may still hurt, but in those situations, you kind of get it. You think, boy, if I had done something else besides what I knew better than to do, then I wouldn't be right here. But what the ones that are the hardest to swallow are the ones where we don't feel like we've done anything to bring that on. And that's certainly this uh, individual in the psalm here. Um, I may go the second mile as an employee, do everything you're supposed to, to do, and still get laid off. Uh, I may lose a spouse 
a parent or a child to some terminal illness despite having prayed fervently and daily about it. And we ask, why did God let them die? I may find myself in some dilemma that wasn't my fault or my doing, and I ask, why won't God deliver me? I may misinterpret silence as the fact or the, the thought that he doesn't care. Another application is suffering is a severe emotional test. You can feel surrounded by what you don't want to be surrounded by. You can feel yourself all alone. You can feel yourself just worn out and done. The, David says he is poured out, he is melted, he's dried out. Uh, you can see how he, he describes that in verse 11. You can feel like you're the object of ridicule when others people... A Christian is going through a problem that's, very, that's beyond the ability to keep private. You, you fill in the blank. Maybe it's they've had a, a spouse to walk out on them. Or there's uh, a very serious illness in, in family. Or there's maybe a financial reverse that's pretty severe. And their co-workers, their neighbors, their friends who aren't Christians, what might they be tempted or inclined to say about that Christian going through that? Where's your God? I thought you were, oh, I thought you Christians. I, I, I didn't, you know, I, I don't live like you do. I'm not going through near what you're going through. See, this is not a new thing. This is something that has always happened. And so the psalmist is showing us that this is a, a test. Uh, and we'll talk more about what comes on the other side of that. Uh, we can also find hope in the most difficult moments. That's something else that we see in this. That God is my God. Even when these trials seem severe, I can lean on this relationship with God. He calls him my God. He refuses to give up on God d despite what he's going through. God's nature makes me trust Him. He has all power. The psalmist knows that God is stronger than all and is able to deliver him. He's absolutely holy, verse 3. He's worthy of my trust, verse 4 and 5. And so it's through this trial and difficulty that he's able to wrestle through this and to learn and understand more about God. That God is my Savior. Uh, he sees that. Uh, and that leads us, I think, very well to the Messianic implications. Uh, let me just kind of do the spoiler alert and tell you this is not about David. There's so much in this psalm that cannot apply to David. Let me, let me show you just very quickly. David was never without a helper, verse 11. So far as Scripture reveals it, David was never stripped of his clothes, verse 17. He was never in the kind of suffering that's described in verses 14 through 17. He was never pierced in either his hands or his feet, verse 16. He was never insulted by having his garments parted by his persecutors, verse 18. And I say all that to say, we know now. How do we know that this is not about David? How do we know? Okay. So how do we know from what I read that this is the story of Christ? The New Testament. That's it. Inspired New Testament writers take these and they apply them to Christ over and over again. Every major part of this psalm, they take and they apply to Christ. Especially, I know you're thinking 1 through 21, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You, you think Gospels, but that's a quotation of the Old Testament. All the way verse through verse 21, but even in the second section, where I will sing your praise in the midst of the assembly, 
That's from Hebrews 2 and verse 12. And it's referring to Christ. Every bit of this is referring to Him. Um, And you've seen these, but let me kind of connect them to the New Testament for you before that next bell rings. So start in verse 1, and you'll see... um, Let me just get to some of those real quick. All right, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Matthew 27, verse 46. All who see me sneer at me. That's from verse 7, and it's quoted in Luke 23, verse 35. They wag their head, verse 7. That's Mark 15 and verse 29. Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him. That's verse 8. It's quoted in Matthew 27, 43. They pierce my hands and my feet, verse 16. That's from John 20 and verse 25. They stare at me, verse 17. Luke 23. 27 and 35. They divide my garments and cast lots, verse 18, Mark 15, 24. And then the only one from the second part, I will tell of your name to my brethren, verse 22. That's Hebrews 2 and verse 12. Here's what I want you to get before that second bell rings. It goes from a tone of despair to hope. Here's a question for you. Yes, I know that the New Testament writers take these details. Somebody has said that the psalmist here seems to be more explicit in his description of the cross than even the gospel writers. But why include this psalm in its totality so often in what happens in Jesus' crucifixion? Why pull so much from this psalm? And here's another question. Jesus quotes from this psalm. Why do you think Jesus quotes from Psalm 22? Because it so graphically describes the things that happened there? Sure, I think so. I think there's another reason. How does the psalm end? It's a passional psalm. A passional psalm begins with what? 3.30 in the morning and it ends with the dawn. Psalm 22, how does it begin? 3.30 in the morning, if you will. And it ends in the dawn. Do you believe that maybe Jesus is focusing on how it all ends? Not just them sneering at me, not just them wagging their head at me, persecuting me, but the fact that he's going to deliver me. I have hope. All is going to be well. Look, Jesus was human, 100%. 100% human, 100% divine. And so as he's going through this in his humanity, he wants to know that it's going to be better. That this is not the end. There's hope on the other side of this. That means we can be saved, but it means more than that. It means that when I'm going through my trial, I can look at the cross and I can see the faithfulness of God on trial. He passes with flying colors and he will do that for me as well. All right, thank you very much for your attention.